In this third installment of the Wealth Creation Podcast series, we take a global view to investing. Now, you'll recall in the first two episodes, we unpacked the basics of investing. We took you through the building blocks of a successful investment portfolio. And in this episode, we delve a bit deeper and look at the impact that the economy has on markets. Now, we're going to talk about the connection between the global and the South African economy and the impact that that has on market outcomes and asset values. We'll also touch on a topic that I'm sure all of you have been anticipating, and that is investing in assets such as meme stocks, NTFs and cryptocurrency. And we'll also take a look at how technology and lower costs have made uh, investing in, in multiple asset classes much more accessible. Now, here to simplify all of this, uh, I'm joined by Zengosi Chomfana, who's an investment manager, and Chris Holdsworth, the chief investment strategist at Investec Wealth and Investment. Zengosi describes herself as having an inquisitive mind and has an approach to life that is a continuous voyage of discovery. She also has a passion for financial markets and is an internal optimist. Although she also describes herself as a non-conformist and times a skeptic, and we'll get into a bit of that in the next few seconds. Uh, Chris is an avid trail runner, but uh, he does admit that he's kind of fallen off the bandwagon since uh, COVID-19, and uh, he used to enjoy traveling too. But uh, since the onset of COVID-19, he's taken more of an interest in reading and has done quite a few road trips domestically instead of traveling abroad. Zengosi, let me kick things off with you, and I'm keen to hear from you. Uh, when you say you're a non-conformist and a bit of a skeptic, uh, what do you mean? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for that intro, Aya. What I mean by being a non-conformist, there's a lot of opinions and comments in the financial markets from like very clever people, but there can be a lot of noise as well. So, you know, being a non-conformist, uh, for me, it helps me resist the herd. So, you know, in instead of like, you know, going with the crowd, you kind of like establish your own views and own opinions, and then you make your decisions from, you know, instead of just going with, with the crowd. And also, you know, skepticism protects me from distractions caused by, again, you know, listening to predictions by gurus and other prominent forecasters. But just like having an independent mind and, and thinking. But of course, you need to pay attention to what those clever people are saying. Yeah, and I guess clever people like yourself. You know, I, I remember being taught at school that, you know, markets over time follow a random walk. And uh, I always wonder how much of it is random and how much of it is a bit of an art or a science. And uh, Chris, you know quite a bit about that. I mean, I guess when you're not out on the trail or out on the road, you're also reading up on global markets and how market outcomes are influencing the economy. Why does the broader economy matter for how markets perform and I guess uh, movements and asset values? I think that there's a key fundamental point that, that needs to be established when linking global markets to the, the global economy. And, and that is what, what matters for companies over the short term is earnings and, and dividends. But what matters for share prices ultimately is discounting future earnings and dividends back to this point in time. So it's a question around how much a company is going to be able to generate from an earnings and dividends perspective over time. And then at what rate do you discount them back? And, and for those two things, in effect, you need to have a view on the economy because if you've got a strong economy, companies will be able to generate more revenue and potentially in that environment, more earnings and, and return those earnings to shareholders through dividends. But you also want to discount future dividends and earnings at a particular interest rate. So you need to have a view on the economy, but you also need to have a view at what discount should you apply. If a company's forecasts are particularly risky, if you can attach very little levels of confidence to forecasts, you're going to discount at a higher rate. 
And, and if you have great faith, and if a company is particularly stable and not volatile, you can discount at a lower rate because you're more confident about what will occur. So you need to have a view on the economy, activity, and a discount rate. And, and broadly for their entire market, when you're not looking at individual companies, we would then say, right, we need to have a view on where economic activity is going, and then we'll look at the broad discount rate, the, the risk-free rate, your, your government 10-year bond yield, and, and we'll add a premium to that, and that will give us an idea as to what we should discount. And then we can say, is the market currently at fair value, or is it cheap, or is it expensive, based on an anchor point, which would be established using longer-term economic forecasts and an appropriate discount rate. I remember, you know, Zen in, in finance class, they used to always talk about, you know, what Chris just mentioned, which is, you know, the a 10-year sovereign bond and the yields on that and, and how, you know, if you mapped out a yield curve, uh, I all found it very confusing at that point in time. But, I, but I've later come to understand that I guess it's a, you know, the, the shape of the yield curve is uh, rather indicative of, where we are in the business cycle, where we potentially might be going. Just tell us how that works, because I must say, I mean, it took me quite a, a long time to wrap my head around that. You spot on, uh, Aya. That's it. Uh, so the yield curve can be and, you know, and has been a great an economic and inflation predictor. But let me start off by explaining the yield curve, uh, hey, Aya. So it is a graphical representation of the yields available for bonds of equal credit quality but different maturity dates. So it reflects where short rates are expected to go, you know, since long rates are an average of short rates. But put it another way, so long-term lending should give you the same returns as short-term lending rolled over. And so we rely on that equilibrium for our forecast. The way I like to think of it, uh, hey Aya, is that the yield curve is a proxy for investor sentiment on the direction of the economy and how they feel about risk. So what we look at is the shape of the yield curve. I mean, I'll spare our audience of the technical aspects uh, and just touch on the most uh, two important shapes. But let me just start off about the, the normal yield curve. So the normal yield curve, you know, it's like short-term bonds carry lower yields to reflect the fact that investors' money is at less risk relative to long-term bonds, you know, which demand higher yields for their long commitment, right? This type of yield curve, it implies a stable economic conditions. And then you have the steep yield curve that has a similar shape to a normal yield curve, but the spread between short-term rates and long-term rates gets wider. And this type of curve implies a growing economy. And then the flat, flat yield curve, that one, um, this one implies an uncertain economic situation. Lastly, we have the inverted yield curve. It slopes downward uh, where short-term rates exceed long-term rates. It sounds counterintuitive, right? I mean, why would long-term investors who are taking more risk settle for lower rewards than short-term investors? Well, when those long-term investors believe that this is their last chance to lock in current rates before they fall even lower, they become less demanding of lenders. So it implies a severe economic slowdown, signaling um, you know, trouble ahead. Definitely signals a severe economic uh, slowdown, which is you know typically yeah. Uh, Chris, Chris will tell you, uh, Aya, uh, you know, as the oldest in the room. <laughs> no. And having lived and having lived through a couple of cycles, you know, <laughs> that yield curves have reliably uh, preceded economic, uh, expected economic cycles. So, for for, for example, the, the, two, the October 2007 yield curve flattened out and a global recession followed. This was during the 2007-2008 financial crisis where financial engineering 
uh, to be frank, got ahead of, of the market. And then in late 2008, the curve became steep, which accurately, uh, again, indicated growth phase of the economy following the Fed's easing of the money, of the money supply. But looking at our local markets, the current yield curve in SA is extremely steep and it's difficult to justify. It implies doubling of short-term interest rates in the next three years. From where we are sitting, it does not look like the South African economy, um, you know, will grow enough to justify those rates or even inflation will be, be high enough. And so as an investor, you can take a view against that. And, and in the U.S., the current yield is steep. So the one-month yield is at 0.03 and the 10-year is 1.3, which signals higher growth and that investors expecting a rising inflation to come. We also track the U.S. 10-year uh, yield which implies what market participants expect inflation to be in the next 10 years on average. For example, high inflation expectations translate to high yields. Why does this matter? Well, higher than expected inflation is negative for risk assets, including equities. So as an investor, you should keep an eye on the bond market. Yeah, Zen, I find that so interesting because I guess what you're suggesting is that you know, the, the shape of the yield curve is not only indicative of the expectations of market actors, but also might give us a glimpse, you know, uh, into the crystal ball of the future in terms of how those expectations will play themselves out. And uh, also, I guess, the comparison between the risk expectations now in the current moment and, of course, uh, in the future uh, in relation to people putting their money down into the bonds. Um, now, uh, you were signaling there to Chris, and I guess we, we call him the chief because I guess he's, he's seen a lot, of these, a lot of these ebbs and flows in the business cycle over the last while. Uh, and I would think that, Chris, you know, there would be a lot of these variables. And Zen has started to mention some of them, you know, inflationary expectations here at home, but also abroad. But also, I guess there would be product prices, and I'm thinking here commodity prices, uh, terms of trade, but also other, you know, regulatory or policy actions by the Fed, by the central bank here in South Africa that would really influence the expectations that Zen has been speaking about. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, if we simplify it to, to the, the, the most elegant model for South Africa, we, we are a small, open economy. We are completely dependent on global fortunes. So what typically happens in South Africa's case is that it's a recession caused by one factor or another. And for us to get out of that recession, we require global stimulus and an increase in commodity prices. And then what typically happens, commodity prices strengthen, the RAND then subsequently strengthens. We land up with lower inflation in South Africa, space for a cut from the central bank. And then we land up with SA Inc, consumers doing better. Now that's a transition from higher commodity prices ultimately to an improvement in domestic consumption. And then at some point down the line, we land up with the next recession caused by, again, a myriad factors. And then we land up with commodities rescuing us again, and then the cycle continues. So for us, broadly speaking, very simplistically speaking, the, the key question always is, is where are we in that cycle? And where we are at the moment is we've recently experienced a massive boom in commodity prices. And, and it just so happens to be the case that it's commodities that South Africa exports very beneficial to us. So our trade surplus is massive. We've never seen a 12-month trade surplus like we've currently got. It's around 8% of GDP, which is huge. As a percentage of GDP, that's the highest that we've seen since the late 80s. So post-democracy, we, we haven't seen this in South Africa. To put that further into context, our net exports as a percentage of GDP at the moment 
are not materially different from what Saudi Arabia was printing pre-COVID. So we are exporting in a way that Saudi Arabia did before. And if this persists for a long time, it, it matters immensely for the South African economy. It, it means that we get a, a more supported currency. We land up with tax revenue, surprising on the upside, because these miners will pay more tax. And then we land up with more revenue for the state, which they can then use to either reduce taxes or reduce borrowing. And then that leads back to the long bond yield that Zen was talking about. And if it is the case that this can't last for sufficiently long, government finances improve, then our long bond yield comes down. And that's the reference rate for all discounting in South Africa. So you start to discount at a lower rate. It's very beneficial for all equities, not just resource companies. So commodities are a key leading indicator for the broad economy. And should they remain elevated for a sufficient amount of time, it's very helpful for the broad SA market, not just resource market stocks. Chris, how much of that more favorable terms of trade has something to do with the global supply chain challenges that we've seen? I mean, we, we see it in the semiconductor and the chip industry at the moment, and also the challenges you know, in the, uh, I guess, the freight and logistics sector, especially the export-focused ones out in China, initially due to the COVID-19 outbreak, and we're seeing more recently now the typhoon. A lot of it has to do with the stimulus that we saw in China in particular. So they experienced a recession, just like the rest of the globe did, and they opened up their stimulus taps completely. And as a result, they started to suck in a lot of commodities and the rest of the world provided. But as you said, there are supply chain issues. So the, the price of those goods started to go up. And if we look at our exports, we're not exporting any more than we did before. It really is simply a case that the price has gone up. So these supply chain disruptions in some way have been quite helpful to South Africa. So far, there will be knock-on consequences as well. We're struggling to import goods as well. But the stuff that we export is going up in prices. And so there's a, a profit that is now coming through to certain parts of our economy, which is very helpful for the broader economy. Zen, let me bring you in here because I think the picture the chief is painting here is a very interesting one that suggests that you would have across the business cycle some volatility in not just asset values, but volatility in the real economy that is determined. We've spoken about commodity prices, but of course, there would be other challenges such as the you know, global supply chain challenges that would influence that. You refer to South Africa as a high beta emerging market. Now, maybe just explain that for us. What do you mean by that? And more importantly, what implications does that have for my money? Just to first off, start off talking about the relationship between the South African economy and, you know, the global economy. So what seems to be quite a consistent relationship between the US dollar weakness and emerging market currencies and market strength, those are positively correlated, just to start there. So the link between capital flows out of the US into emerging markets and bond is good for EM currencies, including the rand. And, and is particularly helpful for pure SA plays. You know, these will be your Mr. Plus, your Distel, and your Bidvest and the likes, because it, it helps hold down inflation and interest rates. So while our market will move in line with emerging markets, at times you observe a unique relationship in the JSE. When we look at the performance of the JSE measured in dollars, the exchange value of the rent will influence that performance. We observe a different picture. When we look at the performance of the JSE measured in rents, net-net, the impact is diffused by the composition of the JSE. What do I mean by that? Rent plays tend to be hurt 
by Ren Wigness and Ren Hedges. These are your British American Tobacco, Richmond, Naspers and the likes. These benefit from Ren Wigness for South African specific reasons. As an example, as in Nenegate, as such, uh, Professor Kanto, uh, Brian Kanto, our colleague and my mentor, likes to refer to them as South African hedges rather than REN hedges. I'll give another example. The REN has been the best performing emerging currency year to date on South African specific reasons such as the tailwind that Chris touched on earlier, you know, the high commodity prices being boosted by the buoyant global demand. And of course, that's boosting um, mining activity. And also, you know, the South African GDP data, you know, that, that's been surprising upside. And so, so the impact of the dollar on the JSE in rent terms and the performance of JSE in dollars is different. Another in- interesting aspect, which now touches directly to your question, is that South African market is the high beta emerging market. So the RAND and the JSE market perform worse when global risks are elevated and better than emerging market peers when those risks decline. And this is partly because the RAND, you know, is, is among the highly liquid emerging market currencies. And, and Chris, I'm quite interested in the picture that both you and Zen are painting for us and how that informs or gives us some tools to make an objective assessment of the outlook of the economy. And based on that, make not only asset allocation, but I guess portfolio decisions as well. Yeah, fortunately here, we are able to establish what consensus forecasts are. And we can then try to figure out, are those reasonable or not? And where is the error likely to lie? So as an example, I mentioned earlier on the, the trade surplus that South Africa's got at the moment, the record-breaking trade surplus, the, and that ultimately means a current account surplus as well. The consensus forecast is that that's going to disappear quite quickly, and within a year or so, we're going to go back to a, a trade deficit. So if it is the case that commodity prices persist at current levels for the not-too-distant future, we know that the market has got it wrong. That, that's not what is widely expected. And should that be the case, government revenue will continue to surprise on the upside, and I'll come back to that point shortly. But profits will surprise on the upside, and discount rates will surprise on the downside. So it will be very helpful for our equity market in aggregate. So what do we need to keep an eye on? Quite simply, at this point, we need to keep an eye on commodity prices. There are a few other factors at play, which in many cases we can't simply ignore like our ability to generate electricity, as an example. But the key factor to keep an eye on at the moment for our market in general is simply commodity prices. Now, in terms of government revenue, there too, we've got consensus forecasts and we've got forecasts from the state as well. Every February, they put out their budget and in November, they put out their medium-term budget policy statement. And from that, we can see expectations with regards to government revenue and government debt. And from that, we can calculate expected debt to GDP. Now, that's a key metric. It's what the rating agencies refer to. It's what investors in general refer to when evaluating the security of our government debt. So you've got lower debt to GDP. If you're an emerging market, then you will land up with a better rating, higher debt to GDP, and you'll be penalized. And so when government revenue surprises on the upside, like it is at the moment, and we think at this point, government revenue for the financial year could well be more than 150 billion rand above the February forecast, then in that environment, government debt is is lower. And then in that environment, debt to GDP is low. And based on our estimate at this point, the current debt to GDP trajectory for the state is not materially different from the pre-COVID debt to GDP trajectory, which is nearly unique amongst countries. I mean, we've seen countries around the world throw debt at the problem. 
they needed to. And as a result, they borrowed. And, and the debt to GDP for a number of countries is worse than it was before, but for us, not. But that's not what's reflected in the market. And so there does seem to be some degree of pessimism. There's an expectation that this trade surplus is going to disappear quite quickly, that the excess profits are not going to be persistent, that the debt to GDP trajectory will increase and, and materially worse relative to what we think is a reasonable current forecast. And so for us, we think that there is some degree of margin safety in a number of asset classes in SA. And that's broadly speaking how we would link an economic outlook to valuation of various asset classes. I guess the other dimension, Chris, that I'd be interested in, especially if I'm a long-term investor, is what that will have as an impact on inflationary expectations. Because we know that inflation then erodes uh, the value of Iran today compared to the value of Iran in 2035. How will all of these real economy considerations that you've just mentioned have an implication on inflationary expectations and by extension, I guess, the erosion or lack thereof of value? The first thing we need to start off with is by humbly recognizing that inflation is something that is very difficult to forecast. There are a number of economists over time that have set up what look to be very reasonable models, but nonetheless, we find that there's a huge margin of error around those models. You can look at the central banks for pretty much any country around the world, and you go and get the little the shape around their central forecast where they account for variability at a 95% confidence interval, and you'd be surprised at how wide that interval is. So the first point is, we have a little ability to precisely forecast inflation over anything longer than the very shortest time horizon. But notwithstanding that, we must accept at the same time that in the environment where we've got a central bank which targets inflation, inflation matters a lot. It matters A, for the reasons you mentioned, but B, because you get a policy response from the central bank. If inflation is high, surprisingly high, then you get a hike. And if it's low, then potentially you, you get some form of a cut. So despite the fact that it's difficult to forecast, we nonetheless need to be able to provide a forecast. And at the moment, we think that inflation expectations in South Africa are too low over the coming 12 months. We don't expect that inflation will breach 6%. We think it'll be at an around 5%. The general market views it'll be around 4 So we're a bit higher, but not high enough to suggest that the central bank should aggressively hike. So we think that there will likely be one 25 bit hike over the coming 12 months. And they were quite different from the market. The market says inflation is going to be well behaved, but the central bank is going to hike rates by 100 basis points anyhow. And, and that's something that we simply can't figure out. So the, again, this does appear to be an excessive amount of negativity. And even though we forecast inflation to be higher than the market, we don't think the market is going to hike anywhere near as aggressively as, as is generally perceived at this point. Thank you very much for that, Chris. And what I like about this discussion is the interface, I guess, between micro level real economy consideration and the broader macroeconomic environment that we faced with. And the other element of that is what some might argue then is the democratization of investing. If, if you were wanting to invest around the time when I was born in the early 90s, uh, you probably would have had to have a brokerage account. You probably would have had to have a significant amount of investable capital uh, to be able to access the investment space. It seems a lot has happened since, uh, but it's also moved in tandem with some generational shifts that are quite interesting. See, Aya, this is a, a thematic theme I find quite interesting, which is the democratization of investing. Uh, I mean, we've all seen the rise in retail investing, in particular millennials and Gen Z investing. So the Robin Hood crowd, uh, you know, coupled with the Reddit rebellion, has made day trading both profitable and fashionable again. But 
very little attention is paid here to the history of speculative episodes like these. The skyrocketing popularity of meme stocks among millennials, creation of cryptocurrencies, NFTs. I mean, NFTs are, you know, it can really be anything digital, such as drawings, music. But a lot of the current excitement is around uh, using technology to sell that digital art. Um, and, and like I say, as a millennial, I'm also uh, fascinated, you know. But, you know, also the, and I mean, how can I forget the recent squeeze, you know, uh, with the game stock, you know, that also all of this illustrates uh, this. Commission-free trading and investing platforms such as Robinhood, they allow people to purchase fractional shares, options, and crypto trading, and with ease of access as in your phone, you know, we have digital robo-advisors using algorithms, you know, they also are democratizing low-cost financial advice so that it's no longer just institutions that have the know-how, right? Social media platforms like Reddit, TikTok, you know, are filled with advice for young people eager to learn about investing. And this phenomenon has been further fueled by the inability to go out and spend money on travel and entertainment during the ongoing pandemic and the economic uh, stimulus money. So I, uh, millennials have taken the reins of their own investments. But some question whether this is a short-term phenomena as with previous market bubbles or a long-term movement. Well, looking at history, however, I mean, I, I like going back to history for insights. Individual access to trading securities has ebbed and flowed across many cycles. We have seen this type of behavior going back about 100 years. I mean, I have a plethora of examples uh, here, Aya, but some, you know, some noteworthy ones uh, I'll touch on. The Roaring Twenties, you know, the great bull market that lasted nearly a decade. You know, this is where, you know, bucket shops, which invited folks off the street to trade stocks on margin. So what, what I mean by that is that investors borrowed from their brokers to buy stocks. Uh, you know, that saw many individuals buy and sell stocks during the 1920s, and then they were burnt uh, by the great crash in 1929. Also, you know, again, yeah. And it's interesting, I guess, the comparison, because the roaring 20s follow on from the 1918 Spanish flu, which many people are, are comparing, I guess, you know, for differences or similarities to COVID-19. Yeah, no, definitely. It's it, it, Again, it just speaks to the, the craze around the time we are in the cycle as well. So what I was trying to say is that, you know, it's not new. It also goes with the time we are in the cycle. And also one of the other interesting uh, times is that day trading became a national pastime, you know, as the internet bubble began, uh, began to inflate in 1995. So again, you know, multitudes of investors were trading hot.coms regardless of whether they were profitable had revenues, or even market-ready products. Crazy, right? That market was also democratized, only to wipe out many traders and investors when the bubble burst in the year 2000. So, like I say, I've got a plethora of examples, otherwise we'll be here the whole day. But but basically, I guess what I'm trying to say, Aya, here is that the game has not changed. Only the faces have. And this is not the first time that your average Joe has seen the playing field leveled in the stock market. And like all others before it, it's likely to tilt back in the favor of the pros and hit the newly freed individuals. I guess historic and contemporary insight there, because often uh, people make it seem like a lot of these 
advances and opening up of the space in the world of investment is something that's rather novel. And I like that you mentioned, you know, in the first parts of, of the 20th century that we saw a similar development there. I want to maybe tie up our discussion, I guess, with a question to, to the pair of you. And Chris, I'll start with you and get a response from Zen thereafter. And it's around how workplace and cultural shifts that have been brought about by restrictions on mobility. I mean, one of them is working from home. It's improved the productivity of many workers and many uh, employers are quite concerned or, around how you preserve corporate culture. Uh, but it also will have massive or has had massive implications on commodity prices. We're not driving around as much as we'd like and therefore you're not paying as much on fuel. Not enough cars are being sold to justify you know, uh, the need for auto catalyst that drives the platinum group metals in this country, which have certainly been on, on a rally for, for quite a while now. Um, how do we deal with that uh, and the negative impacts that might come to the resources sector, but also some of the opportunities that might be presented by this new working from home phenomenon and this new sort of work culture, if I can put it that way. Chris? This is a very complicated topic. It's going to have an, a number of impacts in the market, which I think at this point are are quite difficult to forecast. As an example, as you quite correctly say, there is now an aversion to traveling to work. Um, even in countries that are back at work, we find that people are, are not wanting to use public transit in the way that they did before. But that might ultimately mean people buy more vehicles. There might be more vehicles on the road because you want to travel to work by yourself, not next to somebody else who potentially could be contagious, which could lead to an increase in demand for catalytic converters and ultimately platinum. So it's very complex, but the one thing we can establish with some degree of certainty is that there has been a productivity improvement. Companies have been forced to operate more in a more lean fashion than before when people were at home and, and they were unable to come through. And a, a lot of what they've learned is going to stick. And ultimately, we see an increase in productivity and typically an increase in productivity means an increase in wages. And so we'll end up with more wages. And that is beneficial for the broader economy. So it, it might well be that the silver lining to what has been a very dark cloud is that the net output of all of this, this COVID period, this 18 months or so that, that we've been suffering through, might well be an improved trajectory for growth in the long run, which would be very helpful, more broadly speaking, for commodity prices and for the price of risk. And so if it is the case that we land up with more productivity, more wages, more ability to take on risk, that also means ultimately better equity markets and stronger emerging market currencies. So as I say, it's a bit of a minefield out there. It's quite difficult, I think, to be able to forecast anything in the space with any degree of precision. But the trend is probably in favor of growth, wages and emerging markets. Thank you very much for that. Zen, you have the last word on this one. Yeah, sure, Aya. I mean, for me, I think there's more opportunities to come from this. Uh, you know, the, the nice thing about working from home, it's made more workers more productive coming from that flexibility. I mean, I see it with myself, you know, the my quality of my work has improved drastically. I mean, others can, you know, argue to say that, you know, working more hours and, 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 and the like, but I mean, that you can question your, the quality, you can put in more hours, but is the quality good? But for me, like I say, just seeing the flexibility I have, my quality of work has improved and that should filter through into, into your GDP, right? More productivity and better quality of productivity. And, you know, as much as some industries might be hit hard, like, you know, your, your coffee shop around the Investec building or, you know, some people that are servicing those buildings and property companies, that capital and those resources and, and those people 
people will be, you know, they'll find other opportunities in this new world that we're going into. So I don't think all will be lost. Uh, it just means a bit of creativity. But I think net net, uh, it's going to be positive and should be positive for the economy. Chris and Zen, you guys have been awesome. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to have to leave it here. We could chat uh, probably the whole day and uh, all of the fascinating things. I mean, I think you've taught me a lot today. But I want to thank the pair of you for giving us your time today as Ngozi Kiomvana, an investment manager, and Chris Holdsworth, chief investment strategist, uh, both of them at Investec Wealth and Investment. Thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Thanks, Aya. Cheers. That brings us to the end of this informative discussion. Again, I'd like to remind you that Investec My Investments has uh, reduced investment minimums uh, on local unit trust from just 1,000 rand a month, making it easier to start your wealth creation journey today. Do join us for our upcoming episode where we'll discuss single asset versus multi-asset portfolios. It's sure to be another riveting educational experience. Till then, take care. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of Investec Wealth and Investment and should not be taken as advice, guidance or recommendations. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, member of the JSE Equity, Equity Derivatives, Currency Derivatives, Bond Derivatives and Interest Rate Derivatives Markets, an authorized financial services provider and a registered credit provider.